According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, turning to all four simultaneously. We'll see how good you are at doing that. Actually, we'll start with Matthew 27. Well, 26. Yeah, Matthew 26. Just spot a typo in my notes. That's okay. We're dealing with the arrest of our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night in which He's betrayed, the night before He goes to the cross. Episode 25 in the uh, Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. Remember, each section of the Harmony of Gospels has its own independent outline. Uh, so the numbers will restart again when we get to the uh, resurrection ministry of Jesus Christ. And uh, there'll be a number of events that'll happen there in the 40 days of his resurrection ministry. But as for now, we're at episode 25 in Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. It's a section of his uh, ministry that started with a triumphal entry on Palm Monday and uh, has brought us now to uh, the night in which he's betrayed. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we're humble under the teaching of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you this morning once again for the truth of your word and the privilege we have to assemble together. We thank you for this Life of Christ series and for all the lessons that we've learned in watching our Savior and the example that he set in uh, his obedience to your plan, in his humility before you. Father, I pray that we would uh, learn these lessons that we need to learn, Father, to be an imitator of Christ, that we might accomplish all that you have for us, Father. And we uh, we couldn't accomplish what He accomplished, and yet each one of us has a cross that we are to take up. Take up our cross. It's assigned to us. And I pray that we would learn what it means to, to uh, say, not my will, but thine be done. Father, thank you for this class. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Now, in this, we have Matthew 26, verses uh, 47 through 56. Uh, one of the longer accounts, actually, that comes here in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark's account, Mark 14, 43 through 52, Luke 22, verses 47 through 53, is the shortest of the accounts, um, and then John chapter 18, verses 2 through 12, one of the handful of events that's actually recorded in all four of the Gospel records. And uh, I took the time last week to read through all of these, and I won't redo that again. I uh, just recommend that you can do so on your own. Read uh, through all these accounts and observe the similarities and observe some of the distinctions that are to be found. And as you put them in a sequence, this is, I think, the simplest sequence under point one, the simplest sequence, and we can outline them A through G, taking seven different uh, activities that occur in the process of this. First of all, Judas arrives with armed soldiers. It's the first thing that happens here, and all four Gospels record this. Judas' arrival with armed soldiers, that they are, he knows this place, uh, he knows it well. Uh, John 18 says that he was familiar with it because uh, Jesus would often meet here with his disciples. It was a place that he would take them for teaching, a place he would take them for prayer, and a convenient location on the way back to the Mount of Olives. Uh, Bethany is the village where Jesus was sleeping each night during the course of this uh, Passion Week. And so, uh, we read here in Matthew 26, 
While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by or followed by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately Jesus went to Je- uh, Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. And that just boggles my mind, all right? You know, if I needed any more reminders of how our Savior did what we could not do, I couldn't do this. You know, knowing who's betraying me and uh, calling him friend. And uh, so they came, they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, uh, when he turned to the Gospel of John, we find out finally that it's Peter. Uh, behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached out and drew, uh, drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. The verse that gets quoted and misquoted and misapplied and all kinds of things that we need to understand what it's about and what the application is. Uh, the attempt to resist Rome's authority. Uh, Drew, Israel will do so as a nation and they will suffer for it. And I believe this is a prophecy of that related to the um, resistance to uh, the plan and program of God. So we'll deal with that. It's not, a, it's not a verse that defends pacifism or a verse that defends against you know, things that uh, Christians try to turn it into. Verse 53, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? All he has to do is ask for them, request them, and they are at his disposal. And, uh, you know, what could he do with 12 legions of angels? (laughs) All right. We know what one angel did to the Assyrian army in the Old Testament. What would 12 legions of angels do in any event? How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? I mean, think about what you're trying to do. Are you trying to contradict Scriptures? Are you trying to stop the plan of God? Are you trying to hinder human redemption? What are you trying to do? All right. So here's the the first item in the sequence. Judas arrives with armed soldiers. And we're going to detail those armed soldiers today. Secondly, Judas's kiss. And a private word from Jesus. Now, it's only the synoptics that cover this. In the Gospel of John, we don't have reference to the kiss. And we don't have the private message that Jesus has for Judas, where he calls him friend, or where he asks him what he's doing. And these questions, very informative, very instructive for us. We, we learn that through the asking of questions, you can actually teach a number of things. Very common. This is common for the Lord. He asks questions, and he's, he's been doing so ever since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, and the, the, the Lord appeared in the garden, and, and they hid themselves. And the Lord calls out, Adam, where are you? Okay, Why is he asking questions? <laughs> because it's instructive. It gives opportunity for repentance. It gives opportunity for confession. It gives opportunity for a, for a sinner to, to throw himself on the, you know, for, for mercy. All right. does the same thing with Cain. Where is your brother? And, uh, you know, your brother Abel, his blood is crying out to me from the ground. And he's asking these questions, giving the opportunity for repentance, for confession, for mercy, and aspects there. And you wonder here, uh, I would prefer to take verse 50, if you're still with me in Matthew, it gets phrased a little bit in Mark and Luke, it gets phrased a little bit differently, but I think it's perfectly acceptable to take this as as a question. Friend, 
What have you come for? What have you come for? Phrasing it as a question. And, and again, providing the final opportunity for Judas to, uh, to uh, repent. Of course, he doesn't. He is the tool of, of betrayal, and we understand that. So, you know, why does God give opportunities for those that he knows are not going to redeem the opportunities? Why does he do that? Is God stupid? Why does he provide opportunities? Because I think it's critical. I think it's, he knows who, who, same thing with the gospel. He knows who's going to accept, who's going to reject. God's not a moron. He knows. But why does he provide the opportunity? Why does he then give the, ask the question, say, so the demonstration of his mercy, demonstration of his grace, demonstration of the opportunity. And no one that goes to hell can say they didn't have the opportunity. All right? We want to be very clear on that. So the first item, A, Judas' arrival with armed soldiers. All four Gospels record that. B, Judas's kiss and a private word from Jesus. That's the account in the synoptics. By synoptics, we mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in case you're not familiar with that term. They're called the synoptic Gospels because they're largely parallel to each other. Point C, the third event, what I call the triple I am. You might call it the double I am, but the triple I am is what I've called it. Oh, it's only recorded in the Gospel of John. This is where he challenges the soldiers and says, Whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And they fall over. <laughs> All right. And uh, beyond the comedy of it, which makes me laugh every time I read it, but there is actually tremendous uh, impact here. We, we see the stress that our Savior is under and the power invoked when he declares, I am. And uh, we'll discuss this. The, the nature of humanity coming face to face with with the majesty of God. And, and it's kind of remarkable how he's laid aside his privileges, how he's cloaked himself in humility. But I believe what we're observing here is a, is a testimony to how troubled he was. Uh, he's, he admitted that his soul was troubled to the point of death. There comes a point the next morning where he stays silent in the face of some of his accusers, in the face of some of his judges. And, and you have to wonder, you know, had he opened his mouth, had he cried out, <laughs> you know, would he have obliterated the continent of Asia or something, you know, with just divine power? Okay. We'll evaluate some of those aspects. So the triple IM message is only recorded in John. Uh, Peter's sword, point D, Peter's sword will handle, will handle under the fourth uh, division here. Peter's sword, all four Gospels record it. Uh, some with more detail. Only the Gospel of John tells us that it's Peter's sword. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all just say, you know, a certain disciple uh, grabbed a sword. And likewise, John gives us the most specificity. He names Peter as the disciple. He also names the, the slave of the high priest. The synoptics tell us that it was the slave of the high priest, but John's record tells us that his name is Malchus. We have specificity in John's record. We're going to learn also, by the way, the next morning when he's, he's standing in front of the high priest for his trial, John has family connections that allows him, or personal connections, that allows him to gain entrance to the house. Peter was going to have to lurk outside the, the house in the, in the street somewhere, and John has, uh, has access to actually get into the house, to get into the property, to, to eavesdrop on the trial. And that's extraordinary. We, we actually learn more about John and his family connections. Zebedee was a very wealthy man and uh, connected in, in the tribe of Judah and the family of David. Remember, if you're, if you're of the family of David, that's royalty to the Jewish people. 
different aspects there we'll take a look at when we introduce that. So Peter's sword we'll look at. And what's Peter going to do? What's one guy going to do with a sword? <laughs> right? Facing a cohort of trained Roman troops. <laughs> well, you know, it's we laugh at it a little bit, but I, I, we really shouldn't. Because I think a lot of us are Peter on a lot of occasions. We think that we can just grab a sword and do something about it, right? We can just grab, we're going to, we see a problem and we're going to fix it. We don't realize how pathetic we are with, uh, you know, standing there with a sword going against a Roman cohort. Point E, the fifth aspect that we're going to study in this episode, the message of irony. Now, this is my title for it, the message of irony. And it's only recorded in the synoptics. It's phrased in different ways, but it's largely, I think, largely similar between the three gospel accounts as far as the verbiage is concerned. And, and the message of irony is this. Um, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me? Is this what you're doing? Are you executing an arrest warrant against a, a known criminal? Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Is this what you're doing? And then here's the irony of it. I mean, you've got a whole cohort here. You've got 600 soldiers possibly up to. We'll talk about whether it's a full cohort or not. But it's a tenth of a legion. <laughs> and is really? You didn't arrest me yesterday? You didn't arrest me earlier today? You didn't arrest me the day before, the day before that, the day before that? Every day this week I've been in the temple speaking publicly. Every day. I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. So what are you doing? What are you really doing? And why are you doing it here? Why are you doing it out of public view? Why are you doing it in darkness? Okay. And we're going to see uh, this hour, the power and the darkness are yours. Okay. That in the angelic conflict, there is permissive will being applied here and that the... Um, the victory, if you call it that, I mean, it's, it is a, a victory of the adversary to arrest him and put him on a cross. Okay? But in that victory, he actually seals his own defeat. <laughs> which is why it's just a, a mark of how wise God is, of the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age understood. For if they would have understood it, they would not have crucified the, the Lord of glory, we're told. So I call this the message of irony. Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Now, that's not for lack of trying. We'll see that today. They had attempts, but they, they did not. They could not. But tonight they can. And the reason why they have success is not because the Lord makes Peter put his sword away. <laughs> it's because the Lord allows himself to be arrested. The Lord submits to the will of the Father, not to these guys. All this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then the disciples left him and fled. All right. What I call the message of irony. We'll spend some time on that under point E. F and G, the fleeing disciples. The fleeing disciples are recorded in Matthew and Mark, M and M. I think it's implied in Luke, but Luke doesn't come right out and say it. And then the story of the naked young man. Only Mark's gospel records this. I think it's Mark himself. If it's not Mark himself, I, I fail to understand why these verses are even in here. Verses 51 and 52 of Mark 14. 
They all left him and fled, and a young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. That's the first time we see him. The last time we see him, he never reappears again in uh, the Gospel of Mark. He was never featured prior to that in the Gospel of Mark. It doesn't tell us what this young man's name was. And uh, my personal conclusion, and many of the church fathers wrote on this, is that this was Mark himself. This is his own little cameo appearance in the Gospel that he writes. He gets to write this Gospel, I believe, because, uh, well, you could think of it as the Gospel of Peter recorded by Mark. And I believe for different reasons, Mark, Peter was not allowed to write a gospel. I think for different reasons, Paul was not allowed to write a gospel. And um, Mark was selected to write the gospel that could have been Peter's. And Luke was allowed to write the gospel that could have been Paul's in some respects. Anyway, the the naked young man. I won't say a lot about it. Um, In fact, I've already said everything I can say about it. There are different legends and traditions uh, about why he was there and why he was naked and how he got to be there and um, things like that. All right, so let's start today with the soldiers. Point two then in the outline, let's look at these soldiers. Who are these soldiers? And and we're thankful that we have the Gospel of John, so let's turn to John 18. Because if all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all we would think that it's just a mob, it's a crowd. It's a crowd, we're told. Isn't that what we're told in the synoptics? The synoptics identify a crowd from the chief priests and elders. A crowd that's armed with swords and clubs. And so, uh, on our way to John, I guess I don't mind taking a look at these. Uh, What are we told in, in Matthew 26, verse 47? Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. That's what we're told in the Gospel of Matthew. In Mark, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd, an oklos, with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And then in Luke, While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd, an oklos, came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. Now, later on, a few verses down in Luke's record, it's interesting, because in verse 52 there of Luke, Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come against him. So, There's a bit of a hint there in the Gospel of Luke that it's not just a mob sent from the elders. Some of those elders themselves actually mixed in with the crowd. They actually mixed in. And, um, you know, Jesus actually addresses them, see, as he addressed the mob that they sent. So, according to the synoptics, there's a crowd. There's a crowd. And where do you go to drum up a crowd? Where do you go to drum up a mob? (laughs) For example, certain worthless fellows from the marketplace, we're told. That's where you go to pick up a mob. But in the Gospel of John, we actually learn that this mob has backup. And the backup includes trained Roman soldiers. So, um, 
Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the cohort, you probably have the word Roman inserted there in italics, the Roman cohort, and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So it's a little bit more structured than just simply a mob or a crowd. You have trained armed troops along with the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Very well equipped, prepared. They understand the ambush well. They've got the armaments they need and they have the, uh, the light sources they need. They're not going to allow uh, Jesus to escape. So the synoptics identify a crowd. Point B, John specifies a cohort and officers. Two things. And there's really two factions at work here. And I'm thankful that John records it in this way. Because one is Gentile and one is Jewish. The cohort, the spera, is the Roman military uh, detachment. Then the huperetes is the, uh, or the plural, Huperetai, um, are the officers, those that officially uh, represent the temple. So John specifies a cohort and officers. If you don't like the term officers, then officials will work. But uh, assistants, representatives of the, uh, the temple. All right, the term for cohort is the term spera, S-P-E-I-R-A, S-P-E-I-R-A, to transliterate it, sigma, P, epsilon, iota, rho, alpha, spera, for the first year Greek students that we have here. Number 4686, that's the Greek uh, Strong's Concordance number, if you use Strong's numbers for your word studies, it's number 4686, and it has seven New Testament uses, so we can... Uh, Take a look at those. won't take too long. But it's actually not really a Greek word when it comes right down to it. It's, it's, it's a Greek word with reference to a Latin word, with reference to a Roman military unit. Okay? And uh, it, it, it does describe the faction or the portion, one-tenth of a legion. That's why we say there could be up to 600 soldiers here this night. That gets pretty crowded. <laughs> All right. They've got this garden very well surrounded. Um, there would be, the Romans would keep a legion actually in the uh, environs of Jerusalem during the festivals, during the feast to keep order. Now, this is, of course, Passover season. Passover is the next day. Um, some are observing Passover on Friday. Some are observing Passover on uh, Thursday. That's why the Lord had his Passover meal Thursday night, and the Pharisees don't have their Passover meal until Friday night. Different uh, ways that, that, uh, you can re uh, that you can reconcile that. In any event, during the Passover season, during all the seasons, because there were so many crowds in Jerusalem, all the pilgrims and all the crowds, the Romans uh, would, would move their legion into Jerusalem. And uh, this is, these are the officers that are here. All right, um, we have them here. Let's just look at a handful of these uses. I'm um, dubious on the Matthew 27, 27. We'll, we'll see if that's correct. Oh, it is. Okay. It is correct. Matthew 27, 27. 
And this is, of course, the next day. This is after his arrest, but before his crucifixion. He's had several trials. We're going to see the, the various trials that he goes to, to the high priest and then to Herod, and then to, or to Pilate, and then to Herod, and then back to Pilate, and so forth. Um, but after Pilate finally gives up on trying to release him, and he ends up releasing Barabbas, and he has Jesus scourged, and then he hands him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole cohort around him. The whole spera is gathered around him. Now in this verse, I think this is significant, you have a modifier there, you have whole. It's not just gathered the cohort around him, gathered the whole cohort around him. Notice that? So it may be because of that, that in John 18 where we have the reference made to the cohort, well maybe it wasn't the whole cohort. Maybe they didn't assign the entire cohort to, to go arrest. Maybe it was just a detachment from the cohort. And that's probably reasonable. A squad of some sort or a, a smaller detachment. Remember, the Romans were very structured in, in their legions and their centuries and their cohorts and uh, so forth. All right. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And this is what we have mentioned here. Uh, Mark 15, I think, is parallel to that. Mark 15:16. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having received or having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. And again, we have the modifier "whole," the whole cohort. In verse 16, the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole cohort. The whole spera. And they dressed him in purple. And after twisting the crown of thorns, they put it on him. And so there it is again. But the whole cohort, I think it's significant. We don't have whole cohort mentioned in, uh, in John 18. John 18 is our passage today. The, the arrest of Jesus, verse 3 and verse uh, 12. We also have reference to the attendance here, the huperetes in John 18, verse 3 and verse 12, as well as verse 18 and verse 22. Uh, cohort. I'll come back to this, I think, when we look at the, uh, the officers. Who are these officers of the temple? And what are they armed with? Right? And then you ask yourself, I don't know if you ever pay attention to this, but when you are um, an occupying army, Okay, as Rome was, and you have sovereignty over the conquered people, you don't let them have weapons. <laughs> okay, or if you do start letting them have weapons, it's only certain ones that get rep weapons, and you keep a close eye on them, and you limit the kind of weapons they can have, and you don't entirely trust them while they have their weapons. You position yourself so that if they decide to do something stupid with those weapons, you have more weapons than they do. And you're in a better position. Okay? <clears throat> and I speak from experience, having done this. Part of the, uh, the Four Lemons MP Company were the first MPs that went into Kuwait City during the Operation Desert Storm. And so we had Kuwait City under martial law. And then at the point where we were prepared to hand it off to the Kuwaitis, we, uh, and I'm not sure how exactly this was managed, 
because uh, we realized pretty quickly we couldn't tell the difference between an Iraqi and a Kuwaiti. And uh, they just looked like Arabs. And so we said, okay, we need to, <laughs> we don't want to arm the bad guys. But we learned pretty quickly they could tell the difference. And they hated the Iraqis because they'd been abused by the Iraqis so badly. So anyway, we, we took a few units, a little bit here, a little bit there, and uh, started to arm them with M16s, some machine guns and some other things. And it was a bit nervous <laughs> at first. Said, okay, we're putting guns in these people's hands. All right, but they're working for us, and, and we're going to hand it off to them, and then we're going to leave, and, uh, and so forth. And, and anyway, it worked out. Uh, but So you, you, you recognize that uh, the Romans didn't allow just anybody to, to walk around armed. The Romans, they were a conquered people. They were under occupation. And they, they permitted, for example, the temple officers to have arms because they had there was so much uh, money in the treasury and, and income that was coming in and they were skimming parts of it, you know, because they were getting their own taxes paid. So they, they accepted, okay, the temple needs guards, sure. And uh, this is who gets dispatched here to arrest Jesus. All right. So um, you have, again, the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews that are mentioned there in verse 12. They arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him to, notice, to Annas first. So even though the Romans are here as backup, okay? The Romans are here as backup in case the temple officials can't deal with it. But they're not taking him to the Roman officers. They're taking him to the Jewish officials first. That's who has first claim on uh, on him for his first trial. We'll talk about why he has multiple trials and why those trials come in the order they come. Why don't the, why don't the Romans just take him to Pilate first thing? Why does it have to go to the high priest first? And why are the trials in that order? And so we'll have that coming up in starting episode 26. All right, so we have the cohort there. We'll come back to that. Chapter 19 and then into the book of Acts, the last uses of... Uh, oh, no, no, not chapter 19. That's for Huperetes. Let's uh, go to Acts 10. Acts 10. Let's keep looking at these uses of Spera. Acts 10. There was a man at Caesarea. That's where the Romans normally kept their soldiers. Uh, it was on the coast. They could sail right in. That's where the, the capital was as far as the Romans were concerned. They, they patrolled Jerusalem when they had to, and then they occupied it in force, as I said, during the, during the festival seasons. But there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Spera, the Italian cohort. And uh, a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continuously. And we've had teaching on this. In fact, Warren Dowd taught through this and the Acts series, uh, the fact that he's a devout man, I think is significant. I have yet to find one instance where that term is applied to an unbeliever. I believe he's a Gentile believer. A Gentile Old Testament believer. He's not in the church yet. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit yet. But his uh, devotion to the Lord is clear. And he prays to God continuously. He's a believer with capacity to pray to Elohim. In any event, the Italian cohort that's stationed here at Caesarea. 
And some of these are useful because we have secular records, we have Roman records, we've got the histories written by Josephus and so forth. We understand the placement of some of these Roman legions, the ones that will eventually in 70 A.D. surround Jerusalem and destroy it. Back to chapter 21 and chapter 27, the final two uses of Spera, Acts 21 and verse 31. And Paul is seized here, and uh, it's kind of interesting. They realize that they're not going to win in court, so if they can just whip up a frenzy, then they can go ahead and just murder him, uh, kind of a thing. This happens still to this day. happened in Pakistan uh, earlier this week. I don't know if you noticed. Uh, there was a Christian who was acquitted. Uh, he was found not guilty in his blasphemy trial, uh, in spite of the fact that... Um, you know, there was a Muslim that accused him of, of defaming the Prophet Muhammad. And so they put him on trial. And, well, there were too many other witnesses that said, no, he never insulted the Prophet. And so he was found not guilty. And he was released. And then the next day, the, the mob went and killed him. All right. So if you survive the judicial proceedings, uh, you know, the mob will take matters into their own hands. And so, uh, verse 30, all the city was provoked and the people rushed together and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple. Immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came to the commander of the Spera, the commander of the cohort, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And if there's turmoil in the city, the Romans don't stand for that. And so at once he took along soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander... And the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up, took hold of him, and ordered him to be bound with two chains and began asking who he was and what he had done. And uh, <laughs> different aspects there. Take him into protective custody. Finally, chapter 27, the last use of it. So it's clear that in every instance, at least... There's only seven to look at, but in all these instances outside of Gethsemane, the spera is a Roman spera, and that the officials here are Roman officials, either uh, commanders or centurions. Uh, and so we really don't want to take it any other way in, Acts 18, in John 18. It is a Roman cohort that is sent along with the Jewish officials to, uh, to arrest Jesus. Finally then, uh, Acts 27.1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the, of the Augustan cohort named Julius. The Augustan, that would be Caesar's personal cohort in some respects. Um, Caesar Augustus, he has a spera here. And anyway, the centurion uh, here named Julius. And so that would be his arresting officer and the one that would escort him all the way to Rome. All right, so there's the cohort. If you want more on that, just shoot me an email. I can give you no shortage of, of information related to Roman military structure and the organization of, of, uh, of uh, the centuries and the cohorts and the legions and uh, the different uh, organizational structure of the Roman army. In addition to that, we also have <coughs> the second term, huperetes, H-U-P-E-R-E-T-E-S. H-U-P-E-R, that's the long E, Eta. So, Upsilon, P, Eta, Rho. Epsilon, Tau, Eta, 
sigma. Longy, shorty, longy. Huper etes, or 52-57. Now this term, by the way, is not, does not have to be a military term. Uh, it refers to uh, an aide. It refers to an assistant. It refers to a, uh, a, um, an, an attendant, an officer, an official, a right-hand man, an aide-de-camp, we would say. Now, obviously, if you are an official uh, to a military man, then chances are you yourself are also a military man. But if you are an official to a po politician, then you may also be a politician. If you are an official assigned to a priest... Well, then maybe you might be a priest. Okay, the term is really it's a generic term. If you were an attendant or an officer or an official to a, a pastor, then we would call you a, a deacon. All right. I mean, just in context, you would understand what role this person has based upon the, the line of work that they're in or based upon the, the scope of the, of the activity. Uh, maybe you have a ship captain and you have a, a first mate, a first officer okay, or something of that nature. There's, there's a variety of ways that huperetes can be found. It does have 20 New Testament uses. Uh, in many respects, it's clear from the context that these are officials, these are officers. What we might call today uh, a bailiff in a court, for example. Um, you know, the judge is going to uh, order uh, that a defendant is taken into custody. Well, who's going to do that? The judge isn't going to come down off his seat and come around and take his robes off and lay hands on the guy. It's going to be a bailiff. It's going to be a deputy. It's going to be a, maybe a sheriff's uh, deputy or somebody. And uh, the Greek word that would be used in such a circumstance would be a huperetes. A helper, an assistant, an officer, or an attendant. And uh, 20 New Testament uses. The ones here, I think, in the Gospel of John are significant. And in Acts 5, they give us kind of a flavor for this. And what I like about this is that this is a group that tried to arrest Jesus before, about six months ago. And they were unsuccessful back in the fall. John chapter 7. And so it's interesting. I think this time the, uh, the Pharisees weren't taking any chances. <laughs> so in addition to sending out the Huperetai with, with Judas, they also arranged to get some Roman soldiers to back them up. Get some Roman soldiers to back them up. Okay. I guess you could think of this in similar ways to what we're doing in Afghanistan, for example. We sent out a patrol of Afghanis, and they're the ones that are, have the lead on a raid or an arrest mission or something of that nature. And then they're backed up by a squad of, of army rangers or something of that nature. Uh, that if, if the firefight here goes really bad, then the rangers can back them up and finish the assignment. Also, if you start to suspect that maybe the the people you sent in there, uh, and you want them to go in first, because if a bunch of people get killed, it's better that they get killed than we get killed, right? So they go in first in the more, more dangerous frontal assault. But then also, well, what if they're actually on the other side? <laughs> what if when they get there, they, they turn their coat and they start fighting the other direction? Well, I think the Pharisees were a little bit upset that these officers didn't arrest Jesus back at the Feast of Trumpets. That they actually listened to what he was teaching. And that offended them. How dare you listen to him? We sent you there to arrest him. Okay? And so, you remember this episode in uh, the Feast of Trumpets here, John chapter 7? Uh, the, the verses we're looking at are verses 32, 45, and 46. Um, now this is in the fall. 
And this was an episode where our Savior, um, the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths was near, we're told in verse 2. Uh, Jesus was walking in Galilee. He was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. There was a lot of hostility there, and, and the ministry there was going to be hampered. And it wasn't, he wasn't afraid of dying, but he had to die at the proper time in the Father's will. He had to live long enough to go to the cross uh, at, and be the Passover. So here's the feast of the Jews. And uh, his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you were doing. Galilee is just too small time. You've got to get bigger exposure. You've got to go to the capital. Go to where all the, all the, uh, you know, the, the massive exposure will take place. No one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers are believing in him. They're all unbelievers at this point. James and Jude, they'll get saved eventually and they'll write New Testament books. They'll become apostles. But in this chapter, they're unbelievers. And they're unbelievers that have all kinds of opinions of how he can improve his ministry. <laughs> right? Family members, some of Sharon's relatives or my relatives or family members that have ideas for how we can build this as a bigger church. Okay? In any event, well, thanks for your opinion. Um, yeah, go to Jerusalem, make a great big splash. And he tells them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. And I want to highlight that right now because keep that verse. You see that verse there, John 7, 6? Keep that verse in mind when we get to the uh, statement that, that Jesus makes about his arrest. The hour and the darkness are theirs when he's arrested. And there's a significance to that. We need to, we need to identify in our engagements in the angelic conflict, when is it that God the Father has allowed, under permissive will, when has God the Father allowed darkness to reign? Okay? And rather than get all out of sorts about it, rather than get all offended and get all discouraged and despondent that somehow we're failing in our why don't we have more impact in the city of Austin? Why does it seem that our culture is is uh is is thriving in its wickedness? Well maybe it's been given over. Maybe in the Father's permissive will this city has been given over. And he's allowing it to get darker so that our light shines brighter. Don't get mad that we're not changing things. Just stay faithful with where we are. And if this hour and the darkness are yours, if it's been given unto you, then it's been given unto you. Anyway, we'll talk about that. Alright, so he tells them, go up to the feast yourselves. I'm not going up because my time has not yet fully come. He cannot go and make a big splash. The, the Feast of Tabernacles is the annual feast in the millennium where he will receive bended knee from every earthly king. Once a year, every earthly king has to come at, at tabernacles and bend the knee to Jesus Christ. And he can't go up and make a big splash at tabernacles, not until he accomplishes redemption. All right. Well, then later on, he does go up, and he does go up secretly. And he does go up, and at about the midpoint of the, tea, of the feast, in verse 14 we read, at the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and begins to teach. So, he doesn't go up and make a big splash. He doesn't go up and start demanding worship. He doesn't go up and start doing anything official related to the Feast of Booths other than, as any rabbi would have an opportunity to go in there and just start teaching his disciples. 
And then the Jews are astonished, saying, how, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? Okay. How, you know, this, this man's illiterate. He doesn't have our credentials. He doesn't have the degree from our Pharisaical uh, rabbinical school. See, and this is where we get our term for the seminary that we have here. And the training ministry that we have here for pastors that, that are trained here. All right. Following in a good tradition, following in a good pattern. Anyway, now in the process of this, the Pharisees realize they've got to put a stop to it. And uh, in verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem are saying, wait a minute, <laughs> is this not the man they're seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly and they're not saying anything to him. Now, this astonishment, we're going to come back to this when we talk about his message of irony. Saying, I, I spoke there every day and you didn't arrest me then. Why not? Why are you coming out to me now as if I'm a bandit of some kind? And, and it, that question he has for them, that question of irony, matches up very well with this question here. Well, wait a minute. They, th this guy they want dead. They want him dead, but they're not stopping his teaching. Are they afraid of him for some reason? <laughs> What's holding them back? Why don't they stop him? Why don't, if, they, if he's a criminal, why don't they kill him? If he's a teacher of blasphemy, why do they let him go? The rulers don't really know that this is the Christ, do they? What do they know that they're not telling us? What do they know that they don't want to admit? <laughs> right? Like the death of our ambassador in Benghazi. What did our government know? And why do they not want to admit what they know? What are they afraid of saying what they know? And then they, they go on. They say, well, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, nobody knows where he is from. And this, I think, shows a remarkable ignorance because they should have known he comes from Bethlehem. Some of the religious leaders knew that he came from Bethlehem. They told Herod that he comes from Bethlehem. Why does this crowd not have the teaching from the book of Micah? <laughs> you ever think about that? I believe this crowd is being kept willfully ignorant. This crowd is not being told. This crowd has had false teaching. The Pharisees have taught these guys, when the Christ appears, we don't know where he's going to come from. The Pharisees don't want these guys to know that Micah says he's born in Bethlehem. Because Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem. And there's too many witnesses to that. So they don't teach Micah to these people. It's like today. What rabbi today teaches Isaiah 53 to Jewish people? Nobody. Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 is never taught by any Jewish rabbi to any Jewish person. Because if certain verses were spoken of, then people would start putting two and two together. <laughs> okay? Can't let that happen. So look how ignorant these people are. When the Christ comes, we don't know where he's coming from. In any event, he has his I am statements. He says here... Uh, you, you both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. And, and this just has to stop. And so now they send the soldiers. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? 
And they're right. They're absolutely right. What, are the, what, are the, what else can you conclude? Look at the science. Look at the miracles he's doing. Look at his teaching. And so the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. And these are the huparetai that we have in, in the garden, the passage we're looking at tonight. And so uh, the officers come to seize him. And then, uh, it's interesting, they, uh, they're unsuccessful in doing this. And so when you look down here, this division that occurred, all these arguments, uh, verse 40, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Now, the prophet is the prophesied prophet like unto Moses that's re- recorded of there in, in uh, Deuteronomy. And then here is the Christ. And it's the same thing. The prophet is the Christ. But you see their confusion. They think, well, maybe there's two. Maybe there's a prophet first and then a Christ. And then uh, has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David, from, the, from Bethlehem, the village of where David was? Finally, someone pulls out their Bible and starts looking into it. <laughs> You wish they would have done that way back in verse 27. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. And then notice now the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees. They said, why did you not bring him? You know, when you've got to report back, mission not accomplished, you better have a good reason. <laughs> and the officers, the Huperetai, answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. <laughs> oh, you can imagine. You know how insulting that is for the for the Pharisees they just said that to? Because <laughs> they were the teachers, right? And these officers come back and say, we've never heard anybody teach the Bible like that before. Right? Well, you realize, what are you, what are you, what are you, who are you insulting here when you're telling these people this? So the Pharisees then answered them, you... Have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him, has he? Well, Nicodemus has. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, this is uh, the episode here. And it's, it, it, I find it interesting. I find it very interesting. When they took the time to listen, they actually took the time to listen. And not just follow along with, well, we know better, just listen to us. Okay. I find it it's remarkable. It's almost like, um, you know, some uh, folks that actually pay attention to the Bible. Well, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? And they finally break free from their Catholicism, for example. Because they actually take the time to listen. Listen to the Bible teaching. Read the Bible. See what it says. And they had people discourage them all along and say, well, don't, no, no, don't listen to those Protestants. Don't listen to that. We know the truth. You know, none of us are going after that. Just stay with your mother church. But then somebody says, you know, I want, to, I want to hear for myself. I want to listen for myself. And what happens? The Word of God comes alive, and truth is truth. And you start to realize, wait a minute. There's uh, these people here have a vested interest in lying to me. Why is that? Anyway, more to say on that. We'll let that go. Uh, so that's John 7. Uh, the officer's here in John 18. This is our chapter where the arrest takes place. Uh, they're mentioned along with the cohort in verse 3 and in verse 12, but then they're mentioned on their own without the cohort in verses 18 and 22. And so, 
after the arrest, um, and they take him off to Annas first. They led him to Annas first. And at this point then, once he's safely in custody and once he's on trial before Annas, then it appears to be at that point then the cohort dismisses. The cohort returns back to the Antonine Fortress or wherever it was, probably the, the Tower of Anthony there that uh, on the northwest corner of the, of the temple where, uh, where they were stationed because they disappear at that point. But the cohort, not the cohort, but the, the, the officers stay nearby. And so we continue to see them throughout the trials. We see them in verse 18. Um, Peter was standing at the door outside and, and there's a slave girl there that said to Peter, you're, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. And then in verse 18, the slaves and the officers were standing there. You know, I expect one of those slaves, you know, was buddies with Malchus. <laughs> One of those slaves saw what happened to Malchus, said to Peter, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? So there's slaves and there's officers standing there having made a charcoal fire. It was cold and they were warming themselves. Peter was also warming you know, with them, standing and warming himself. So we'll talk about that. We'll, we'll get to this. And then finally, verse uh, 22, when he said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, is that the way you answer the high priest. So there's another one of the Huperetai standing nearby. So those are the officers. In chapter 19, in chapter 19 and verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. So these are the Huperetai and they're in this context, anyway, they're, they're Jewish. They're attached to the Jewish religious leaders. They are the military officials. They're the, the bailiffs. They are the, the, the handful of Jews that are allowed to bear weapons at this time. I, I, I'm kind of curious. When, when they found two swords in the upper room after communion and Jesus said that's sufficient or that's enough, who owned that house that was permitted to have two swords in the upper room? I find that kind of a, an interesting statement as well. Because uh, the general public would not have been an armed populace. Finally, then Acts chapter five, verses twenty-two and twenty-six. Another good connection with uh, our training ministry here. Because it's in this chapter, well, chapter 4 and chapter 5, where the disciples are called morons, they're called idiots and uneducated men, and they're told to, uh, to stop teaching. And they said, you know what, we've got we to gotta obey God. And then they get arrested for it because they won't stop teaching. <laughs> and uh, good examples here. And... Uh, Verse 22 and 26 here. The officers who came did not find them in the prison and they returned and reported back and saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened it up, we found no one inside. You know, when you lock the people in the cell and you lock the door and your guards are outside and then in the morning they're not in the cell, how does that happen? <laughs> okay, eight years working in the jail and uh, that just doesn't happen. And so you've got the captain of the temple guard in verse 24. You've got officers, the captain in verse 26. 
went along with the officers, proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. And then they take them before the council and say, you know, we gave you strict orders. We gave you strict orders. Different aspects there. All right. I find it interesting here. Um, (laughs) They recognize them as having been with Jesus. They recognize that they were uneducated and illiterate men, but they recognize that they'd been with Jesus. And that testimony is is all the all the uh, credentials you need if uh, if you choose a, a local church training ministry to uh, prepare to become a pastor. All right. So those are the uh, the officials. This is who's sent to arrest him. Now, thirdly, we start to look at Judas, Judas and his kiss. Why did he choose a kiss? <laughs> what a what a sign. Okay, a sign of affection. A sign of uh, rapport, a sign of love, and uh, what an appropriate uh, symbol for the betrayal. Okay, Judas uses a kiss to identify the target, and the term to kiss is the verb phileo, the verb to love. Judas used a kiss to identify the target. The verb is phileo. A verb that's used 25 times in the New Testament, 22 times is translated love, three times is translated kiss. And the three times it's translated kiss are right here in this episode. Matthew 26, 48, Mark 14, 44, Luke 22, 47. The synoptic accounts of the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. Otherwise, the other 22 times that phileo is used in the New Testament, it's translated to love. Simon Peter, do you love me? You love me more than these. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And the back and forth between phileo and agape love that's uh, to be found there in that chapter. Other applications of phileo translated to love. And we've taught many times the difference between agape love and philos love. Two different words for love related to that. Well, we have a compound of phileo, kata phileo, that's used six times, and that does mean to kiss every, every time. And it's almost like in these instances, um, the Holy Spirit inspires the authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to go ahead and use the uncompound form. And I find that special. Because the compound, katafileo, is what I would expect to find in this account. Katafileo, you know, greet one another with a holy kiss. You know, katafileo. Um, it does have six New Testament uses, including Matthew twenty six forty nine and in Mark fourteen forty five. Interestingly, just one verse after the use of phileo. Okay, they're used in back to back verses. When you look at Matthew twenty six, verse forty eight uses phileo, but verse forty nine uses katafileo. Okay. Likewise, in, uh, in Mark, Mark 14, 44 uses phileo, but verse 45 uses katafileo. So they're used in parallel. They're used in, in connection with one another. And I believe so that the reader of the New Testament does not miss the point <laughs> that kissing is a, is a phileo application. Okay? Kissing is a phileo application. When you think about it, who do you kiss? You don't kiss just anybody. You're, you're discriminatory. There's people you kiss. There's people you don't kiss. 
All right. And um, we'll come back to this as well. Philema, the noun, Philema, has seven New Testament uses, including a use right here in Luke 22, verse 48, where it's back-to-back with the phileo of verse 47. You've got the Philema of verse 48. So the back-to-back use is there. By the way, Philemon. You ever read the book of Philemon? The runaway slave, Onesimus, and... Uh, the the slave owner that had a church in his home, Philemon. All right. I don't know if he was a good kisser or not, but that's <laughs> that's uh, you know, mom and dad named him kisser, named him uh, lover, named him uh, intimate friend. Okay, Philemon. So he uses a kiss. And uh, we'll come back to this next week because Jesus calls Judas his friend, his intimate friend. It's uh, a term heteros that we'll have to talk about. Um, Comrade, companion, cohort, heteros. Calls him a heteros. And what is that about? Calls him a friend. Asked him what he had come for. And uh, we'll have to deal with this and its uh, allusion back to the Old Testament and the person of Ahithophel and, and uh, David's betrayals and the uh, activity there. So, um, come back next week and we'll have some kissing lessons. Well, uh, <laughs> that ought to be, uh, you know, got to put a hook out there to bring people back. We'll have kissing lessons next week related to Judas and the betrayal. <laughs> Relax. Not that kind of church. All right. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you. It's fun, Father. It's fun to study your word. It's fun to to grow in all that you have for us. And Father, I thank you for the uh, affection that we have in Christ. Uh, teach us what these things are about. Teach us how the, uh, the, the, the sign of affection that, that believers should have for one another. We should greet one another with a holy kiss. Father, um, show us uh, now the, the utter betrayal of this and how it is that those closest to us can hurt us in the greatest possible ways. Father, uh, just thank you for our Savior. Thank you for his obedience. Thank you for his faithfulness in spite of the maximum pain that that, uh, you put him through. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.